Good morning. Uh, let's, let's look to the Lord in prayer as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and uh, we just thank you for this time that we could look into your word. I just pray that you would give me clarity of mind and clarity of speech as uh, I bring forth what you have laid on my heart, Lord. And I uh, just thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, two weeks ago, Walter Roeder said that when you preach, God puts on your heart what he wants you to, to bring and preach about. So when, when I was asked uh, a couple of, well, several weeks ago if I would preach this morning, I asked the Lord what he would want me to uh, preach about, and the answer was kind of immediate. I heard a friend of mine and a former band member from years ago singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. It was an immediate answer to that prayer. I needed to preach on the holiness of God. So Wayne Grudem suggests that scripture describes the different attributes of, of God because we as humans are not able to grasp all of God's character all at one time. Each attribute describes a different aspect of God's total character or being. There are incommunicable attributes of God. These are the attributes that God has solely for himself, which are not shared with any others. They include his independence, his unchangeableness, his, et his eternality, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. There are also his communicable attributes, those that are not exclusive to himself. These include his knowledge, his wisdom, truthfulness, goodness, love, mercy, and holiness, among others. These he imparts to his followers. And today we're going to focus on God's holiness. <clears throat> holiness defined in the Hebrew means separateness or brightness or freshness as it relates to God. It's not a human quality, but of God alone. What does it mean to say that God is holy? Let's look in Isaiah chapter 6. So turn with me uh, there if you would. Isaiah 6, 1. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Isaiah calls God the Holy One of Israel a total of 24 times, and other Old Testament writers use the title the Holy One of Israel 12 other times. <clears throat> the main use of the word holy is to describe God's righteous nature. It's a unique quality of his character. 
When I did a word search on the word holy, I got no less than 57 pages of text with all scriptures containing the word holy. But don't worry, we're not going to read through all of those 57 pages. <laughs> but Exodus 15:11 asks the question, who is like you, O Lord? 1 Samuel 2 says, there is none holy like the Lord. And Revelation 15 says, who shall not fear you, O Lord? for you alone are holy. Holiness isn't just one of God's divine attributes. It represents his entire nature. God swears by himself. In Amos 4, we read, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness, and the Lord God has sworn by himself. Now, in regards to Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, God says in Genesis 22, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you. Now let's look at the holiness of Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh. Therefore, he was also holiness personified. He reinforced God's demands for holiness by insisting that his disciples have a higher quality and degree of righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 5.20. And like Amos and Hosea, Jesus appealed for more than ceremonial holiness. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That was from Hosea 6.6, and then as Jesus repeated it in Matthew 12.7. So what does it really mean that God is holy? God's holiness sets him apart from all other created beings, from angels and from humans. It also sets him apart from imagined beings, including heathen gods. But most importantly, God's holiness also defines his attitude towards sin. Because he is sinless and perfect, God abhors sin and he's hostile towards it. Deuteronomy 32 says, he is a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Habakkuk 1 says, God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wrong. <clears throat> and in Ezekiel 36, we read, God is concerned for his holy name, which he cannot allow to be profaned. So why is God's holiness so important? And why is God holy and man is not? Well, it is in God's presence that man becomes aware of his sin. The point of God's holiness is that we can't exist in his presence in our sinful condition. Back in the Garden of Eden, God fellowshiped with Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.8, Adam and his wife heard God walking in the garden, looking for them in the cool of the day, after they had disobeyed God and eaten from the tree that God forbade them to eat from. Because of their sin, God drove them out of the garden. He cursed the ground so that mankind would have to toil in order to live. And from that day on, man was separated from God because God cannot coexist with sin. God's holiness demands a human response from us. We all know of the incident of the burning bush in Exodus 3.5. Moses is pastoring his father-in-law Jethro's flock by Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. 
God calls to Moses from the midst of the bush that's blazing with fire, yet isn't being consumed by the fire. When Moses turns to look aside, God told him to take off his shoes, for he was standing on holy ground. Then when Job beheld God's holiness in Job 42, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. We read about Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 just a a few moments ago. Notice Isaiah's response to seeing God. He said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Habakkuk was an Old Testament minor prophet who was a contemporary of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zephaniah. He prophesied during the final days of the Assyrian Empire and the beginning days of the Babylonian Empire under uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his father. Habakkuk couldn't believe that God would punish Judah using unholy Gentiles to do it. So in Habakkuk 2, the prophet said, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Oh boy, talk about insulating yourself from the lightning bolt that's impending. The Lord did indeed answer Habakkuk, and at the conclusion of his response, God tells Habakkuk, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. We read Habakkuk's response in 3.16. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. We even see a response to God's holiness by Jesus' disciples in the New Testament. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, describes how Jesus and his disciples got into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. Now the sea, which is really a lake, lies almost 700 feet below sea level and is surrounded by high hills. So you get these uh, tempestuous winds, these uh, very fierce winds that can just blow up out of nowhere and uh, and turn turn the the nice calm lake into a boiling boiling bath. So, So we know the story how Jesus fell asleep in the stern of the boat when a fierce gale arose, and it was so severe that waves were breaking over the boat, and they were filling the boat with water. The disciples woke Jesus up, and they said to him, don't you even care that we are perishing? Now, let's just pause for a moment. What do you think their state of mind is right now? The water's deep. The wind is howling. The waves are tossing the boat probably in all directions, hitting a wave, bouncing it sideways, almost, probably almost uh, turning it upside down, and Jesus is asleep in the boat. And uh, so, and, and the, some of the disciples are rowing frantically. Some of the disciples are probably bailing the water out of the boat. So do you think they're a little bit concerned? Yeah. They're, they're fearing for their lives right now. And, uh, and, and as we see in their exclamation to Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Then we read what happens next. And he, meaning Jesus, 
got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, did you catch that? First, they were fearful of their lives. Jesus calmed the sea, and then what does it say? They became very much afraid. So they were afraid before, and now they're afraid again after. They should have been elated when Jesus calmed the sea and, uh, and, and took care of the, the problem, uh, even more than when they thought that they were going to die. But because they realized that they were in the presence of holy God incarnate, they became very much afraid. Let's also recall the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Six days later, we read, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Again, because they were in the presence of holy God. Martin Luther, prior to his conviction that men are saved by faith and faith alone, was a monk who became a Roman Catholic priest. At his holy ordinance to become a priest, or the equivalent of we would call his ordination ceremony, Luther was to perform his first Mass, his first Holy Mass. The moment came during the Mass where Luther was to pray the prayer of consecration, where Roman Catholicism teaches that the moment that particular prayer is prayed, the miracle of transubstantiation takes place, where the wafer of bread becomes the very body of Jesus Christ, and the wine becomes Jesus' very blood. As he was about to recite the prayer of consecration, Luther froze. His body trembled, his lips moved, but he couldn't speak. Everybody thought he merely forgot the words of the prayer. His father was completely embarrassed. But Luther did not forget the words. He explained later that as he came to that point in the Mass, he began to contemplate the thought that a sinful human being such as himself would dare have the audacity to hold in his filthy hands the precious blood and the body of Jesus Christ. He was so overwhelmed with his own unworthiness that he lost his composure. It did take him several moments, but he was finally able to mutter the words of the prayer and complete the Mass. So it's in God's presence that man becomes aware of his sin. Every human being, whoever is exposed to the holiness of God, trembles in his presence. We are deemed holy only because of what God has done for us. There's nothing because of what we have done. 
Now, there are consequences for disregarding the holiness of God. God established Aaron, Moses' father, uh, I'm sorry, Moses' brother, as the priest of Israel. We see in Leviticus 9 how Aaron followed Moses' instructions as to how he should offer the sacrifices of God in the temple, in in the tabernacle. Fire came out from before the Lord to consume the sacrifice. Now Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, were also serving as priests in the tabernacle. They disregarded Moses' instructions, and we read in the next chapter that they offered strange fire or strange incense before the Lord. We don't know exactly what that means, but we know that they did not follow God's instructions. As a result, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the two sons of Aaron rather than the sacrifice. Now fast forward to the reign of David in Israel. During a war with the Philistines, the Ark of God had been stolen by them. It had been recaptured by Israel, but Saul never sought to return it to Jerusalem. So when David became king, he purposed to bring the Ark of God back to Jerusalem. We read in 1 Chronicles 13 that they transported the Ark on an ox cart rather than the prescribed method whereby the sons of Kohath carry the Ark on their shoulders with poles through the designated rings in the Ark. When one of the oxen stumbled, a man named Uzzah put out his hand to keep the Ark from falling off of the cart. When he touched it, God struck him dead in fulfillment of Numbers 4.15. Now these two instances were reminders to the Levites that they were to handle the holy things of God in the manner that he prescribed. Let's look at two New Testament examples of the results of disregarding God's word in regards to his holiness as well. In Acts 5, we recall the account of Ananias and Sapphira, who sold a piece of land and wanted to give a portion of the proceeds to Peter and the apostles as an offering. Now, that was a very noble and a worthy thing to do. But instead of just giving it and saying that it was a portion of what they sold it for, which would have been perfectly acceptable, they lied and said it was all of the proceeds. So God struck them dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. There was no reason to lie about the gift. They were prideful and they wanted the praise of man rather than the approval of God. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul was giving instructions regarding the observance of the holy ordinance of communion. He writes, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The the observance of the Lord's Supper is not to be taken lightly. It is a holy ordinance that God gives to us. 
Paul chastised the Corinthians in verses 20 to 22 because some of the Corinthian church members were using the observance as a meal, being gluttonous and even getting drunk while not sharing their food with those that had little or nothing to eat. As verse 30 tells us, for this reason, many among them became weak, sick, and even died. God's holiness is not to be taken lightly. Now let's look at the holiness of God's people. Another major use of the word holy is to describe the character that God demands of his followers, of you and me. As I said earlier, God's holiness sets him apart or separates God from all other created beings, including ourselves. So if God is separated from us because he can't look at our sin, how is it that we as sinful humans can coexist with a holy God? It's only because of God's grace and his grace alone. In Abraham's depravity, God reached down and called him by name. He promised Abraham and his seed Israel divine blessing. He set Abraham apart because of his obedience to God, which God called faith, and he called him and his descendants holy. He set them apart for service to him. Now fast forward to Jesus' time on earth. He told Nicodemus in John 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus, God in the flesh, gave his life as a supreme sacrifice for our sins. Look at Paul's conversion. He was headed for Damascus with the purpose of arresting and imprisoning the followers of Jesus. Jesus himself intervened and met Paul on the road. Jesus reached out to Paul and saved him in a most miraculous way. We know the rest of the story and how Paul went on to become the apostle who spread the gospel throughout Asia Minor. In Acts 16.14, Paul was teaching about Christ, and Lydia was in attendance. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So God in his mercy extends salvation to us. God gives us the faith to believe. 1 John 5.1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This is the start, the point where God declares us righteous instead of sinful. This is how we can now come before a holy God, because he has declared us righteous. From this point on, we are commanded to be holy, because he himself is holy. This process towards holiness is called sanctification. Now, a good definition of sanctification is growing into God's likeness and being set apart for his use. Peter urged suffering Christians of the Roman Empire to follow God's example of holiness in their trials. As he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 1 Peter 1.15 And in 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul wrote, And may the Lord make you increase in love and abound in love, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God, and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Holiness for us is important to God because it means that we will be like him. God wants us to exhibit moral and ethical wholeness or perfection, freedom from evil. Holiness is one of the essential elements 
of God's nature that he requires from us, his people. Holiness may also be rendered godliness. The Hebrew word for holy, as it pertains to us, denotes that which is sanctified or set apart for, design, for divine service. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy, as God tells us in Leviticus 19.2. So how do we know that we're obeying God's command to live holy unto him? Galatians 5.22-25 tells us what the evidence of living a holy life to God is like. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So if your life exhibits these characteristics then you can be pretty sure that you're living a holy, sanctified life unto the Lord. Living like this will help you live a life of sanctification, a life of growing towards holiness through Jesus Christ, and as a result, growing closer towards Christ himself as well. God gave us his Holy Spirit to indwell us and to direct us in our daily lives. Now, how do we know if we are not obeying God's commands to to, uh, live holy unto him? Well, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, gives us a list of lifestyle living that does not result in sanctification. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, gives us another list of sinful lifestyle living that does not live up to God's holy standard. We read, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the spirit of our God. Now these two lists overlap, but they are not all inclusive by any means. You can't play church on Sunday, but then live like these verses describe from Monday through Saturday. You can't think that you're fooling each other and even fooling God. What does Paul say in Galatians 6? Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So in conclusion, we look back at the one verse which demands a response one way or another. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19.2. Either you are already living because you have believed God and you put your trust in him, not superficially, 
but your life is evidencing the fruits of the Spirit, as we also discussed earlier. So you're living a holy life unto him. Or you're dead in your sins. Either way, God is still a holy God who cannot and will not tolerate sin. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Romans 14 tells us, For we, all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may re be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So if you're walking the walk, <clears throat> then keep your eyes on the prize, which is becoming more like Christ each day. Becoming more like Christ each day is becoming more and more holy each day, in obedience to God's command to be holy, because God is holy. Remember to arise, God has forgiven you, and shine, go forth, and do God's will. For your light has come, as we read in Isaiah 60, verse 1. This is describing our sanctification. However, you can be a Christian, but if you aren't living a fruitful life to God, then you aren't being sanctified, or you're not growing uh, on a daily basis closer to the Lord. You need to examine your heart and get right with God if that's the case. Get back into his word. Experience his holiness. Again, look at Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now the temple trembled from the voice of the seraphim. God hadn't even spoken yet. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the seraphim's voice. And while the temple was filling with smoke, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah has seen God in all of his holiness and his splendor, and he describes it for us. It changed his life forever. So if you're not living the way that the Lord wants you to, then I, I would suggest you contemplate on this, on this passage and, and ask the Lord to reveal his holiness to you. Isaiah 60, verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, after the seraphim flew over to Isaiah and cleansed him of his sin with that burning coal on his lips, look what happened next. Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. He's no longer afraid. He's been in God's presence in his sinful state. God has cleansed him and taken away his sin, and now he's ready to rise and shine and do what God wants him to do. So ask God to forgive you and ask him to lead you, to be, to lead you by his Holy Spirit, which indwells you. Now, you may not even be a Christian, and therefore you will incur God's full wrath and judgment when you stand before him, unless you repent of your sin and trust the Lord Jesus to forgive you from your sins, so that you too may be able to stand before a holy God and fellowship with him.
If you are living a sinful lifestyle, such as we read about in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, then you're not living a sanctified life and therefore are not saved. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, falling short is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. So when an archer shoots that arrow, it falls short. It hits the dirt or the ground in front of the target. That's what it means to miss the mark. As we've been discussing, it means we are unholy before a holy God, and we can't stand, and, 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 uh, and God can't stand to look at us in our sinful state. Romans 6.23 tells us there's a penalty that we must pay for our sins. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not just physical death, but spiritual death. The Bible calls it hell. But note that the last part of that verse does give us hope. It says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we read earlier, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Because of this promise, we can know that we are saved. 1 John 1.9 tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, if we are walking with the Lord, we need to continue living a life of obedience to God in order to grow in our sanctification and in our growing more like Christ each day. If we have been saved but haven't been living a fruitful life before God, then it's time to get serious with the Lord, experience his holiness once again, and become reacquainted with the God who saved us. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So if you've never been saved, know that Scripture tells us Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word, for what it does in helping us to know you and, and how we should live before you, Lord, how we should live before a holy and a righteous God. So, Lord, we just ask that you will just use these words, help us to remember your holiness, and help us to be holy like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.